Hey, I'm Eric Hultgren, and I'm insanely curious about the world around us. And on the Incredible Hulk podcast, my job is to find incredible stories from people you might have heard of and some that you haven't, unpack their stories, and share them with you. On this episode, we head to the Javery Pain Institute to talk about the path to becoming a pain specialist, understanding the opioid crisis, and something called prior authorization, and how if you don't know what that is, it's only a matter of time until you do. This was an absolutely fascinating discussion with Dr. Keith Javery and Dr. Josh Suderman, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Incredible Halt Podcast. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The Incredible Halt Podcast. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret. I'm always angry. Don't tell television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. The Incredible Hulk. Besides, nobody's getting hurt. Podcast. Maybe if I can control it, I can use it. Hear the music. Dr. Javery, Dr. Suderman, thank you so much for spending a couple minutes. Uh, I want to start today, and I was telling Josh this off mic, that mm-hmm. I, I want to start today sort of talking about you two and, and how you got into pain. And as part of my, you know, as part of my prep for this, uh, like I was, I was saying to Dr. Suderman, I watched all the things you could watch on Netflix. I read Painkiller, the book, which if you're interested mm-hmm. in understanding mm-hmm. the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. it's a great way to understand. But in that book, the first quarter of it is the history of, or lack thereof, of, of pain management and how doctors for a long time just didn't understand that pain was a thing. And it got me thinking, like, why, why did you choose this, right? Like, why not dentistry, not <laughs> neurology, not like what? So, Dr. Javery, what, what prompted this? Well, I mean, I was going to joke. I wasn't thinking clearly at the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, with, with joking aside, well... I've been doing this, you know, if you count training, well over three decades, okay? In fact, I've been in private practice almost 30 years, but... So you started when you were eight, then? I was started when I was nine. (laughs) Right. Yeah, he's smart. But uh, when I started this, what got me interested in it, it was, it's a bit personal, but I uh, was, I used to be into bike racing, like, like, you know, Tour de France stuff. I wasn't that good, but that, that type of stuff. And I went down and I slammed and I broke into my hip and I had literally broke my hip, hit my head. If I wasn't wearing a helmet, I'd probably be dead or brain damaged. I mean, it hit really hard. Gotcha. And I was in a wheelchair. It was during my internship, which is the first year after medical school. And a lot of people were saying, there's no way he can't finish. He's in a wheelchair. And I says, I do not want to start this again. It was like halfway through. So I said, I, please let me try. And, but I was in a lot of pain. And then they said, well, it doesn't need surgery, but just stay in the wheelchair, you'll be okay. And then I was in a wheelchair and I was still in pain. And I remember being told, going to the orthopedist, listen, I know I'm not the toughest guy in the world, but I know I don't have like a a really low pain tolerance and it really hurts. Is there anything that you can do? And uh, they really did. At least I felt like they were judging me and they were... Yeah, this this look came on their face. Sure. Again, I, I felt it. And uh, I got upset. And I'm like, okay, I just bear and grit it. And so then I went into anesthesia, which is, you know, putting people to sleep, waking them up, taking care of them. I really enjoyed that, but I missed that contact. But then in the pain clinic where I went to, it was one of the very first pain clinics, probably the top when I say top 10, one of the first 10. Sure. And when I went there, I hated it. I hated it. It was because nobody knew we were talking about, even the doctors who uh, somehow the patients would wind up with us. I would be in the elevator with colleagues at the university, 
and I know Dr. Subman's heard this story, and they say, well, what do you do? Well, I'm at work in the pain clinic. And they the, the pain clinic? What do you, what do you mean? The, the What? What do you do? What? And so and they were serious. These were, these were postgraduate subspecialty physicians not knowing what that was. And the reason I did that is when my original injury, no one knew what to do with me. They didn't know. I, my fracture was healed. Why was I still complaining? Why did I still hurt? And to this day, I still don't know, but it eventually got better. It left me with a little bit of a limp. But to this day, I just, I didn't decide I'm going to be a pain specialist, but it just sparked. And, it, and I tend to get sparked like that way, sometimes out of either frustration or anger, that there's got to be a better way. And so I just happened to be there at the right place at the right time, be exposed, and took off from there. And so you, you've been doing this for, like you said, three decades. How, how long until the Institute was formed? Like how long has this been here? Well, this has been here 12, 12 years, mm -hmm. 12 years. I mean, I've been in Grand Rapids. I was with another group in town. Sure. And uh, so I've been, I've, I've been in Grand Rapids about 25 years. Yeah, 1990, well, exactly 25 years. Mm -hmm. I came here in uh, the fall of 95. Nice. So, uh, you know, I was on the university uh, staff for a few years before that. But uh, it, it's, it has helped. I mean, I don't have met anybody that doesn't know what a pain clinic is now. I mean, Correct, yeah. honestly, for the first decade to decade, maybe 12 years of my practice, even once I got here to Grand Rapids, pain clinic, they didn't know what that was. I heard this every day. If only I had known that there was such a place, I wouldn't have, I had come here years ago. Sure. I don't hear that anymore. So that's the triumph that I guess we've had, not me personally, but that, that especially has had. But then, you know, I guess the flip side of that is is maybe victims of not success, but but victims of acknowledgement, victims of maybe some things went awry where or uh, certain uh, treatments or patients had different expectations or higher expectations. So it, it became a challenge. And so now mm -hmm. it's no longer, hey, you know, uh, I never knew you guys existed. It's uh, I want this, mm -hmm. this, this, and I'll take that with a side of mustard right. and mm -hmm. hold right. that mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, because now they can ed they can quote unquote educate themselves, right? right. So they right. come in and they're. I gonna, mean, the internet can be a wonderful thing. They're gonna do their job, <laughs> your job for them, right? Right. So, Josh, what about you? You've been here for like you said five and a half years. What yes. got you interested in pain? Yeah, I was in training in anesthesia as well, and was in the OR. Like that initially in the pain clinic, didn't like the pain clinic. The it's demanding, and it's you know, and there's camaraderie in that. A lot of people initially are put off by it because it's demanding and it's 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 hard. The procedures are sometimes the easiest part of it. It's sitting down with patients, developing rapport, listening to them, knowing how to listen as if you're understanding, not just to get an answer. Sure. Uh, when I came back through it as I was going through residency, I realized, you know, the operating room is stressful in a way that I'm learning about and I'm learning that the stresses of the pain clinic are different and I can use my hands. I can have a very tangible thing that is going to help somebody. And that was really, really appealing to me and learning how to draw some boundaries and know that, okay, I can help someone, but kind of stay intact, you know, emotionally. Right. Yes. And, and that balance was really, really great. And, and it was very appealing in taking on those skills, knowing how I can care for a patient, develop that long-term relationship uh, was really exciting. And, and that's kind of what brought me into this field. 
for medicine in general, I grew up, I knew uh, in a small town in Kansas, I knew the doctor, the primary doctor. He was a leader in the community, had a respected position, um, seemed like he enjoyed what he did. I even shadowed him and I thought, man, you know, that's got to be a really fulfilling life. So that's kind of what uh, took me into medicine in general first. Very cool. And so you say people know what a pain clinic is, but one of the interesting things about the science and the mm -hmm. art that you guys do is essentially you're in, in a way chasing ghosts, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like a broken arm where you mm -hmm. can go, oh, it's right there. I got to fix that. Right. You've got a, you've got all sorts of parts of this to kind of put together. And so what, what's that process like when, when uh, you just, you don't have to, obviously you just yeah. came from a patient, so I don't right. want you to tell me about that. Right, patient, right. But like somebody comes in, what, how do you start to understand my arm hurts, right? That, and they, you know, a patient probably thinks that's the explanation. My right. arm hurts. My go. arm hurts. Right. So there you go. And so, well, here's the good part. The good news is, is that, uh, well, we only take, well, we usually take referrals. So maybe some of the workup has been done, meaning maybe they've had their arm x-rayed. Gee, Mr. Smith, I don't know. Your arm looks fine. Sure. So says family doctor, but it still hurts. So they go to the pain doctor. So what we first try to do is, and that is the most important thing. I tell this to all my patients. My first job is to find out, we, you told me where you hurt. But why does it hurt there? Okay, and so is it coming from a nerve? Is it coming from a joint? Is it coming from the bone, etc.? So what I try to do is I try to find out what the why of where it hurts. Try to find out the source, and if I can't sometimes find out the source, geez, I don't know where that's exactly coming from. Then at least my fallback is I try to find out the pathway sure. of where that's going from. Where so I can either from, exactly. Right? So I either can identify and or either when I say fix the source or address the source directly, or at least interrupt the pathway or the cabling, so to speak, and, and to block and to either, when I say block it, not literally block it, or to lower the pain that's being transmitted to and from that. But the the hardest part used to be, it used to be this, this right here, the human to human thing. And that's really hard. That hasn't gotten any easier and it won't because people, I mean, you got a time slot and they want they want to tell you everything and they, they can't I want to hear everything but you don't have that time so you have to ask the right questions nothing leading but you have to know what to ask to get that information know what studies to get know what what has been tried what has been tried what makes it worse better and so I try to develop a novelette a, a brief sure, if they right, could yes. you know tell me within two minutes but that takes about you know, at least 20, 30 or more minutes to get that. And that requires a whole staff, a team to do that. But then I have to relay back, all right, here is what I think it is. Here's what it may be. And then here's maybe more tests you need. Or no, we know, I'm pretty sure it's X and or Y. And this is how I would do it. Or this is how, this is what you've tried. That hasn't worked. Here's how, this is what I can do for you sure. and my help. But, you know, and then, like, I guess you guys were talking a little bit about the things lately that have made it in interesting, make it difficult, you know, and trying to put that human thing into a computer algorithm that mm -hmm. you can checkbox that someone, you know, 1,200 miles away mm -hmm. can uh, determine was uh, appropriate, was right, was not. And so there we go into the whole issue of how can someone determine a good treatment for somebody else that has never laid eyes, ears, or hands on, on someone? And, you know, so we're, 
we were both inspired similarly. It's also tough when you have the human connection, which is the most important thing. Sure. But then when you have other demands like patients, I don't know, insurance companies say, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. Or, well, you can do this twice. Good luck, you know, or you can't do it at all. So And so let me cut you off. Yeah. Like how much and I know you guys do a ton of work trying to figure out legislation and within and without insurance companies. Like how much of your job is arguing with that machine to get the proper coverage you know the what you mm-hmm. deem as a doctor right. Pain, I, th- right. right i think your problem is x and i would recommend a or b or a and b um it, it's i know they've done various studies on that but i can tell you this that we there are now several people besides us that are here that that is their entire job is to argue or advocate for the patient for the patient whereas before it was accepted. What would you mm-hmm. think, Josh? Yeah, it, it's increasing. Um, the the this is a billion dollar industry. Prior authorization, what we're talking about. Um, in one year alone, Cleveland Clinic spent ten million on it. Um, it costs at least twenty dollars just to submit. Wait, they spent something. ten million getting authorizations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Henry, actual like real dollars. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford Hospital has a hundred people that do just prior authorizations, so we know that it's increasing. And the ratio for how many people employees it takes to do this per doctor is greater than one, meaning you need more people to deal with prior authorizations than you have providers. And I believe you were on a podcast a couple weeks ago. You were saying that you guys get like 86% approval anyway, or something, some crazy number that... More than 97%. Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Nearly 100%. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. There you go. Yeah. Just to drive that home even more. (laughs) And so that tells you that the argument to do this for you know, co- or for safety or outliers is not true. This is for a cost containment because most things are approved. So it's getting harder to do that. And, you know, why we do this and, and what Dr. Javier was saying earlier is first we have that human connection. It's an art. It's We sit down and you talk personally with that patient. You give them time that they've never had before talking about their pain. That's our job is to sit down and listen about their pain. Because it might be and, the first time they're talking to somebody who understands them, right? Because yeah. they're, they're complaining to their mm-hmm. spouse or their family or right. their boyfriend or their right. girlfriend. Right. Right. And they're like, yeah, 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 your leg hurts, whatever, right? right? So right. Enough. Right. If it takes that much time to listen and that, and we're the first ones that have taken that time, arm pain is one symptom, but it comes from a billion different things potentially. So you have to listen to that person, know what it is. And that's why they can't always fit into an algorithm. Now, are there guidelines and standards of practice that are applicable to our specialty? Yes, of course, we all want to practice within that. But that does not determine care for everybody. And so it's becoming more costly and time consuming to do this. And so this ties into Health Can't Wait, right? Yes. Correct. So can you guys explain what that movement is for me? Sure. It's a coalition of dozens of organizations just in the state of Michigan from pain doctors, joint doctors, family doctors, physical therapists it goes beyond just medical doctors pharmacy pharmacy yep saying that you know health can't wait it's a play on words meaning we can't wait three weeks for authorization and expect to give personalized care as doctors are trained to do right we can't sustain these costs in the healthcare system for the message that it's going to save costs in the end sure because we're the ones also footing the bill Right, and it doesn't. It actually, and these are not opinion. I, I, I can. We can quote. Yeah, those stats are there. Stats are there. This issue, um, again, trying to stay out of politics, but let's just speak facts. The issue of preauthorization uh, has severely increased the cost to deliver 
the same exact healthcare that was the, that ten years of ten years ago. The same mm-hmm. identical technology, same identical mm-hmm. care, and it is an entire. It's not a cottage industry anymore. This pre-authorization industry, it's an, a major multi-billion-dollar industry, mm-hmm. exists for well for the reasons to, uh, in, in my estimation clog the system now that's not why they started that the reasons were probably noble let's give the benefit of the Mm -hmm. doubt wow if we have a pre-authorization that that we think may get rid of uh unnecessary or unneeded tests or treatments but it actually has done the opposite Mm -hmm. so the origins of prior auth were for those outliers for those really expensive treatments Right. right and hey we want to watch out for those now it's come into everyday care and when i say we're the ones that bear the cost i i should qualify that first of all it's the patient right right i mean first of all it's them not feeling listened to because their insurance company puts this algorithm on them and we have to just follow that rather than their story. And the time that it takes to deliver care to that patient versus someone without a prior auth requirement for their insurance policy is vastly different. And you risk alienating that relationship you build with them when you say, well, hey, we got all these things to offer and oh, by the way, I'll see you in three weeks because I just can't I authorize it. Can't do it right? So there's that wedge right in between you and the patient. And from there, then we can talk about doctor's costs and healthcare costs. But first of all, the patient care and that ability to develop trust and rapport after taking all that time to listen to them is in jeopardy. Well, and to take this up a couple levels, like, I mean, I know this and you guys obviously know this, but you, if you're listening, you might not know this. Like the Cleveland Clinic is trailblazing in, you know, Mm-hmm. medical techniques like Correct. what mm-hmm. could they do with an extra 10 million dollars mm-hmm. right a lot right? of good. like what things good. could they do if they didn't have to spend 10 million dollars right. on that right, right. That, a great right. question then you, go, then you go right back down to you guys whatever you're spending on these employees what could you do if that was put back into the patients mm-hmm. well there's other costs uh, the other costs besides the monetary costs and if you just google the uh, physician or even healthcare, non-physician but burnout i mean there is a very real very real and Undisputed, mm-hmm. which yeah, undisputed, uh, severe phenomenon between forty to sixty odd percent of what they call healthcare providers or physicians, mid levels, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, of burnout because of not only the increase, the increased uh, time and effort. I think every physician would would, mm-hmm. would say that's what we have to do, but when it's Every time we hit a brick wall, and then yeah. the alienation of the of the patient, all of this. You know, I've been doing it long enough. I start to sound like like my departed dad, who was a physician, and he says, oh, "Things are getting worse." And I'm like, "Whatever," you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. Yeah. It's true. I mean, he does sound like true. that every day. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it is. It is. It is absolutely true. It is. It's just such a waste, yeah. and it is draining. And burnout is a very real problem mm-hmm. of physicians so, uh, nationwide. So let's bring it back to the room. Like, how do you two manage that, right? Because you've, yeah. you've got a successful <laughs> practice that's super busy. Right. You've taken time out to be with me today, which I appreciate. But yep. like, you've got a million things to do. What? How do you? How do you manage that? Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. stay fresh? To be honest with you, it's I don't have the answer to that. You know, I, I'm just being frank. I uh, try to, it gets, it does get harder and harder. I try to remind myself why I'm here in the first place. Um, I remember one of my mentor, uh, Dr. William Witt, who was the chairman where I came from. I remember this. He says, when I get up in the morning, I, 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 it's basically, you know, suit up, show up, 
you know, uh, that type of thing. Sure. And so, you know, he would just tell everything he would go through and just face the day uh, and, and seize it as best you can. But after a while, it does become uh, difficult. It takes a toll. It takes a mm-hmm. toll for physicians, you know, emotionally, physically, uh, to where, you know, why are we doing this? And mm-hmm. so it's, uh, right. I can't honestly answer that. Right. I, I, re- I wish I knew what, what, what I can do. I you, just come in and just try to do it again. Kind of yeah. like the opioid epidemic. You have a perfect storm brewing here. You've got a demanding specialty that already has high rates of burnout. And even at the worst, I hate to say it, but completion of suicide. And then you're adding a new phase to this burnout epidemic where initially it started with electronic health records and all the administration and the way it took away from patients. Now you're adding to that, throwing gasoline on the fire with more red tape you got to go through. More than 70 percent of physicians already report signs of burnout, not full-blown burnout. Sure. So we're adding to that. And the way I try and get through it is just know that, hey, I've got a chance to develop a connection with a person no matter what I can or cannot do with a treatment plan. Uh, and, and I have the chance to listen to someone and to have them realize that, man, nobody's listened to me before, right? I can do whatever I want after that. But hey, somebody had the Time, took the time and effort to make a human connection with me in regards to something that is so hard to describe and connect on pain, right? And then from there, you know, the other circles of your life, you know, I get up and, and this job right now, it allows me to, you know, see my family and to make good relationships here at work, you know, so family, social, uh, we talk about too, creating health, you know, um, having emotional intelligence here at work. Right. Yes. And, and it's fun. We have great people we work with and that helps to balance a trying and challenging patient interaction with the people that are here, our small business. It's a great family. Uh, and that helps both of us get through yeah. the day for sure. Yeah. Is there, and this might be an odd question, but like, is there anything us regular folk can do to like help, like to join the cause? Like what, I mean, there's obviously more of us than there is of you. Like what can we do to help push back on this sort of system? Oh yeah. Go for it. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, there's the healthcantwait.org. I mean, I I do want to plug that, but and so we go there and what, what are we able to do? These are basically petitions. I mean, got it. We're, we're here because of legislation and we can we can all agree or disagree about you know you know the ACA or Obamacare all of that if we get past that and just get into the we are here now with these problems who makes those rules well who makes those rules are state and national legislators now it's it's more complicated than that but that's who makes yep. the rules. So th- this is it is a political problem. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a political. It is a. It derived from political sources and legislative sources, and it can it can be solved via political sources. manners and sure. sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know that is the way that I I only think that that's I I think that's the only way that it will change, is through the majority of the public demanding that because politicians they want to serve their electorate or at least they want to be reelected we can can agree on that Uh yeah that's what they want i think they wouldn't disagree with that yeah and and if if the public just sits back and that's okay then okay then that's it but but if they don't and i would be you know i would be surprised if that was i mean you know i i guess i've got a, a more 
optimistic view on mm-hmm. humanity, and I just think it's hard to keep up, right? Mm-hmm. I bet mm-hmm. most people who haven't had to go through this don't even know that yeah. that's a problem, right? right? You're probably right. Because if you haven't bumped into prior auth, you don't even know, mm-hmm. right? Because I can speak personally, I haven't had to bump into it yet, mm-hmm. right? And so if I don't, I don't know, it's not a problem for me. But, right? when, but when you do, it's going to be too late. But when I do, it's going to be too it's late. It's too so, late. And here's the thing, because I had that happen on that podcast, right? The person who interviewed me said, hey, I just had this issue where I couldn't get what was yeah, indicated. Because he was moving states or some crazy... It, st- yeah. it was just because he, even if he hadn't moved states, it was just that he couldn't get the MRI, which would give his doctor actionable information. Sure. He needed to get a meaningless test that costed an extra hundreds of dollars, right? And so until you're in that position, you're not going to realize it's too late. And what we need here, you know, Brene Brown is, is famous for saying, we're all just people, 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 right? All these circles and things we name, legislators and insurance, we're all people people, people. So we all want to do what's right for somebody. We all agree on that. And so what we need first are stories. So healthcantwait.org, if you're a patient, go share your story, right? Be ready to step up and say, not to point fingers, not to say, hey, Mm -hmm. you're wrong and that insurance company is evil, right? It's it's tempting for us as physicians to say that, but that will not get us collaboration to solve this because we're all in this together. It will feed the continued tribalism, right? Yes, and it will help us balance our our angst with hey this is the these are the people 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 that are at the center of this so share your story and then let's all get together and talk about this you know we have great conversations with a local you know insurance company on a regular basis and man that is just awesome like we yeah. can hear both sides right. or the million yes. sides to every story yep. right. so we need stories and we need collaboration we need to and want to sit down with people who can make a difference on this as a group of physicians physician community I know I can speak for them yeah I think that. and through and in the base you know, we, you know, we talked about I inferred, you know, the internet, you know, can be troubling because people come in, they say, well, I have, uh, I figured out my problem. I'm like, well, it might be more than that, but, <laughs> but, or, but, the, but the same avenue, share your stories through the internet, through, you know, again, whether it be uh, uh, blogs, postings, Facebook sites. I mean, there, there's probably immeasurable and inc- uncountable amount of ways that the public whether they are directly affected or I can guarantee you, or at least I would be surprised if they didn't know of someone. 100%. And, if, yeah, right. and, somebody, and then just share that story even secondhand. Hey, you know, my grandma had this problem and, you know, it took forever for her to, you know, finally get her hip. I saw her, she had to suffer. She had to do all this silly stuff beforehand or I'm sure everyone has that story. Yeah. And if you, and if each one of us shares that story, enough in the in the arena in the public arena i is my opinion that the the politicians the legislatures will have no choice but to at least do something and and hopefully that something is to just get rid of the meaningless uh the meaningless bureaucracy at least part of it that might free up and make we'll make everyone's we'll, we'll lives a little friction, easier right? yeah like yeah. we'll allow you to get the the health that or the care that you need right, right? Right. Well, the other reason that I, I was here is, you know, when I was talking to Julian about being able to sit down with you guys, I would be remiss if I didn't sort of pick your brain on mm-hmm. the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Because it's it's top of mind. Um, we just had our first um, CEO go to prison over it in, I think, the end of January for, I forget what the company is, but he had it, nothing with the Sacklers, a different company, but he's, okay. he's going to go to prison for 66 months. But when I was talking to Dr. Suderman before we jumped on, like, you have an interesting perspective that I, I'd like to... I want to back up and kind of set the table, but then I want to hear more about where we actually are, right? Mm -hmm. Because you hear these stories in the news and it makes it seem like we're still in phase one when we Mm -hmm. might actually be in phase four. Mm -hmm. And so as I understand it, six months after you... (laughs) 
<laughs> you join the you know the the pain universe. Mm-hmm. 19 no 1996 <laughs> 1996 you know Purdue Pharma rolls out oxycontin right? right and yes and within three years it's an epidemic right it's it's kind of taking over the world and they're using this marketing technique that Arthur Sackler had developed mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s to promote other products but they're using mm-hmm. this this playbook that had made this thing go further faster than pretty much any class 2 narcotic that we've probably ever seen, right? Or ever yes. will see. I mean, I, I was right there firsthand. And, and I remember this distinctly. I remember the names of the salesperson. I remember him showing me his brand new Cadillac that he got because sure. he had so many sales. It was amazing. And uh, again, yes, it was pitched. It was pitched. Here's the studies. It's the doctor. I have a very powerful pain medicine that's stronger than morphine that is not addicting. And those were the exact words. And I said... I never, it's not, how is that even possible? Sure. Well, here's the studies. And so we now know the studies, they were taken out of context. Yep. They were flawed. Then they use those with a lot of marketing to very effectiveness. And when I was, I would prescribe it, p- patients would respond to it. I'm like, wow, this stuff does work. But then within the next year to three years, I started to see some problems, and we would see this. But then it took off like crazy, and then the opioid epidemic. But I, I don't want to steal your thunder, no, but then here do. we go, down the line over the next several years. And then by the late 90s it's and the early 2000s, it is out of control. You have you know, uh, busloads of people going down to Florida, the Hillbilly Highway, the, you know, the uh, Hillbilly... Um, uh, heroin, they Hillbilly, call it. yeah, Hillbilly you know? heroin, and they're going, and they're going to these things going called to these pill mills, pill right? mills, yes. right? So, which are you know traditionally were uh, run and owned by organized crime, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then they would resell them uh, just drug dealers uh, on the street or in the hills, and there's certain straight, uh, I mean, states that were just rife with that: Kentucky, uh, Virginia, uh, the southeastern United States. But originated, it was heavy in Florida as a big supplier, and then it would move to other states. So then along comes. You know, uh, I guess the recognition, I, I can't remember the exact spark that sparked that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you do, but mm-hmm. uh, here we are. And then suddenly there becomes a opiate epidemic. In the fall of 2015, or 16 was it, mm-hmm. the CDC 16. releases a, yeah, 16, September of 2016, releases a statement saying that w- there's a problem here. And we're seeing a uh, high amount of increasing deaths with these increasing opioids. For, for some context, people listening, uh, by problem, they mean 463,000 humans have died because mm-hmm. of this. Right. And that problem itself is, and then when you look at that, and then the, the, well, the issue that is not often talked about is how much of those were suicides, how many of those were prescribed, how many of those were not prescribed or brought in illegally. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it was, an, it was an epidemic of a polymorphic or just of lots of different stuff. I mean, people, hey, you know what, I'll trade you this for that. But as far as the statistics of how many people died from properly managed narcotics from not even just pain physicians, but from anybody, anybody, but properly managed, I believe was in the 30,000, still very high nationwide. I think 38,000 is the highest it ever got, Uh, but per, per year. But the rest of it, majority was still deaths or deaths, whether it be suicide, accidental suicide, in other words, uh, feeling depressed, take too much, or just accidental overdose. And what's fascinating about this is I think it was 
two months ago, The Atlantic just put out an article that at one point at the peak of this, there were so many people dying that they're just now discovering these autopsies that weren't done properly and weren't attributed to mm -hmm. a class two narcotic. So they right. were just... They just, yeah, they were, right, right. you know, they were overweight. They, you know, he had a sleep apnea and he died of, of a heart sure. attack. But here's the interesting thing. And then I'll uh, ask Josh to step yeah. in. The interesting thing is that, so then, you know, in its, uh, and I'm being very sarcastic, infinite wisdom, when, again, when you, a problem has to be treated, but yet overnight you went from thou shalt to thou shalt not. And left a lot of people hanging. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the CDC had to come out about a year and a half later saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't mean cut everybody off. That's just cruel and inhumane. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, taper and do this and do that. And, and uh, the, pendulum, uh, the pendulum swung almost overnight from one to the other where it was, it was a lot of people. There, was some, there were people, and nobody knows this, how many people died or suffered from that. Sure. And so then comes along what we're dealing with now, this phase, whether phase three or phase four, the amount of prescri prescribed controlled two substances hit their peak or their nadir in 2015. Yet deaths from opiate continue to climb every year. Every year. In fact, they're at all-time records still. So what is the opiate epidemic? It was slated as a prescription, OxyContin, sure. then secondary market, and tertiary, quote, markets, end quotes, or drug dealers and that type of thing. But now what is the explanation? It's been postulated. What, what we know for a fact is that deaths from opiates, excluding suicides, and people want to suicide, they're going to try to get something, but excluding suicides, accidental overdoses or medical problems from prescription opiates, are down over 40%. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's almost 50%. Yeah, it's decreasing. Um, I don't know the exact number. It's, it's, but definitely it's decreasing. 40 to 50%. And the maximum number of prescribed opiates hit its peak at 2015. Mm -hmm. And then since 16, it's, it's fallen quite a bit. But yet the, the deaths continue to rise. And it is postulated, and I'm one of those who believe that, based on uh, government data, that the fact is, is that the majority of people dying are dying from two opiates, heroin and synthetic fentanyl. And in the next year or so, it's going to be mostly fentanyl. Why? Because heroin sells for around $66,000 per kilogram. Fentanyl sells for about $5,500 per kilogram simple economics mm -hmm. and uh it's i've i've heard and read that this is from uh east asia china uh th that area of the world it's very uh, relatively simple to make in a lab you don't sure. have to have poppy yeah, seeds yeah. and so this is what would be called a synthetic opioid this is a synthetic yes. opioid that's that's stronger than heroin and it uh, is i mean they're all dangerous but it has even less margin of error because just micrograms difference, you overdose. Even mm -hmm. a non-naive, someone that's been abusing drugs for years. So uh, that death toll continues to climb. So it's not, those are not from patients that were in pain. These are from people that have, unfortunately, addiction problems that are trying, that sought that to fill a hole that I call spiritual hole, whatever, the, whatever you want to call it, that for a while that that fills for a little while sure yeah, yeah. and then mm -hmm. it just gets deeper and deeper you have to put more in so yeah. um 
that, in my opinion, and in most people, I think, is mm-hmm. that's the current yeah. crisis. Yeah. But it's still being thought of as a pain issue yeah well and, and that's that's why i wanted to ask you guys right because mm-hmm. there's again when when we run through the news cycle right we we did that story mm-hmm. right, right we did the opioid we story so we, so we don't yeah. come back even right. though the story keeps going yep. and you remember the last thing you saw mm-hmm. read consumed mm-hmm. right whatever so i wanted to get the perspective of like yeah. where are we in 2020 and, and what can we do about it and as pain physicians what what we're concerned about is you know th- this this term opioid epidemic people don't know what that really means that can mean a bunch of different things sure. as he defined so is it prescriptions well those are down we're trying to be better stewards if it's an addiction epidemic what is feeding into that there's a spiritual hole you know and i agree our society is such a you know we need something from without something from outside to to manage pain but also there's so many different layers to pain that we're treating so many different pathologies and traumas you've experienced and and we we know that different uh, medicines like benzodiazepines sedatives along with these fentanyl are contributing to it and we understand that the opioid epidemic is being treated from an addiction standpoint which saves lives it's amazing to have narcan out there and to have that awareness but what are we also doing on at the beginning of it to manage pain in the first place and as pain physicians, if it's getting harder and harder, as we talked about, to, prof- to provide opioid-sparing treatments, well, how are we going to decrease the need for something like a pill, i.e. opioid, yep. that patients want because they're still struggling with pain since it's never going to go away Bravo. and it's the most common reason you see a doctor? So we have to be able to have skills beyond opioids or treatment options beyond opioids to treat this. Otherwise, we're going to keep cycling back through this need and this necessity to drive back to um, illicit substances and death and another epidemic. Well, you two have been super kind, giving me about 45 minutes of your time. And so I I just want to thank you. Dr. Javier, if people want to reach out, become patients, ask about pain, where can they find you guys online? Oh, just JaveryPain.com. J-A-V-E-R-Y-P-A-I-N. Like, ouch, I always say. Uh, Mm -hmm. Pain.com. Yep. Uh, That's that's our best site. We're on Facebook as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, we... we do our best, mm-hmm. and I know yeah. that uh, I I go home each day yeah. tired, but knowing that yeah. uh, that that we both, all of us at this team, have yeah. done our best. Yeah. We work hard at our social media and our website to try and educate people too. It's not just hey, here's some faces of sure. who you're going to meet. It's yeah. we try and put a lot of website, a lot of information on our website uh, to really give people answers and things to think about and knowledge about what we offer even before they come to the visit, uh, and so that we can just hit the ground running. So awesome. yeah, thanks for your time too. Thanks, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Have a great day. Okay, you too as well. <laughs>